I was there on Rob Warner's first day broadcasting UCI. I have photos of the setup that we had. It was maybe like a 10-inch TV, black and white, on a card table <laughs> in the back of a sprinter van with all the doors closed and just Warner screaming at the screen and that getting broadcast. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. He peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McCalvin. Hello and welcome back to the show. And happy holidays, everyone. Um, I hope y'all are having a good time, despite the challenges of 2020. Personally, I feel like the holidays are always a little bit exhausting, obviously, especially this year. But typically, my training is starting to ramp up quite a bit this time of year. And that, coupled with extra late nights playing board games with the family, maybe an extra drink or two, an extra Christmas cookie or five, it's all kind of extra hard on your body. That has been reflected in the data that my Whoop is giving me. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Whoop for being a longtime supporter of the show. They have a special offer right now. If you use code PAYSON, you can get yourself 15% off your subscription. I always rely on my Whoop quite a bit, but this sort of transition phase where I'm coming out of my off season and really starting to, to pile the training hours on, combined with the extra challenges health-wise of the holiday season. Certainly, I'd say above average happy around the holidays, even this year, but physically can take a toll. Fewer hours slept, more cookies consumed, extra drink here and there consumed. It all adds up and Whoop will help you quantify that. So go check out whoop.com, use code PAYSON at checkout and get yourself 15% off. The episode today is with Aaron Lutzi. Aaron Lutzi is someone that I've wanted to have on the podcast since day one, and that is not an exaggeration. Aaron Lutzi has been an athlete marketing manager at Red Bull for a long, long time. Uh, he was one of the folks at Red Bull that believed in me most and worked hardest to uh, bring me on board, bring me onto the roster. I owe him a huge amount. He also has been instrumental in this podcast project since the very beginning. Quick little bit of history, just because I think it, it'll be interesting. We cover this more uh, in the episode itself, but there were some different directions I could have gone with the podcast early on, and, and Aaron was really uh, vouching for sort of taking one one trajectory. And after a lot of deliberation, I, I followed his lead there, and it really proved the right decision. Beyond that, his list of contacts is about as impressive as anyone I've met. And he's been so key to having a lot of the, the really most beloved guests on the show that we have thus far. 
I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Aaron. He uh, is someone that I, I work with on a weekly basis, sometimes even more often, and someone that I, I really admire and, and look up to from a professional standpoint. Um, and I think that'll come through in this interview. We certainly hope to do another one because uh, we have a lot to cover. We covered a good amount in this one, but much more to chat about hopefully soon. I'd also like to give a huge shout out to Zwift. Zwift is the presenting partner of the Adventure Stash, and we're doing a really fun series of group rides on Zwift. As you all know, the Adventure Stash series of group rides coming up very soon, January 1st. If you want to kick off the new year right, please join us. Ellen Noble and I will be leading a group ride on Zwift. You can get more information about that by just Googling the Adventure Stash and Zwift. And the premiere of my most recent podcast episode, an all-new podcast episode with Ellen Noble, will be premiering during that group ride. So if you want an early listen and a kickoff 2021 in style while chatting with Ellen Noble over the Zwift Companion app, you'll have the opportunity to ask follow-up questions of Ellen as you listen to the episode real-time with her. Please join us. It's January 1st, like I said. 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 10 a.m. Central. That's 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. We've had a, a few complaints about the, the time slot that we selected for these group rides, but uh, we try to make as many people in as many time zones happy, which is challenging when we have a global audience, but we're doing our best. Thank you to Zwift for coming up with that really fun idea. I've really enjoyed these series of group rides. We've got lots more coming. Anton Cooper, Yolanda Neff, much to look forward to. So please join us. And I'll catch you at the end of the show. Thanks for listening. I feel like we should acknowledge your history in regards to this podcast. Um, in some ways, I've sort it was sort of embarrassing. <laughs> it was embar- embarrassing when we were talking on the phone last night, and you 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 mentioned you know yeah we could you know talk about the podcast and sort of the origins of that and and uh, my role in that. And it's funny how sometimes things move so quickly that you forget who to be appreciative of. And I, I hate to say that, but I'm just being honest. And of course I, I am, I'm very familiar with what a role you've played in this podcast, but for just a minute, I forgot that like you were pretty much the guy from day one with this project um, at Red Bull. You were my athlete marketing manager at the time. And uh, another, another guy at uh, Red Bull, Luke Westnage, um, had had basically floated a couple of non-competitive project ideas. One of them was an editorial thing. One of them was a podcast. And I kept fighting off this podcast concept because I felt like everyone had a podcast. I was like, there's no way this is going to be successful. We don't need to add one more podcast to the millions of podcasts out there. Um, and I think it was you that really were the one that started cracking me on it. Like, no, just actually think about this in this, this, and this way. Do you have any memory of that time in regards to this project? Like we're almost two years in now when you and I were having those conversations early on. I think I always had absolute confidence that you could do it. And the the real hurdle was going to be just getting you together with the right people to get it started. And once the ball was rolling, it would be a wrap. You know, there's this quote that I absolutely love that um, people overestimate what they can do in one year, but they underestimate what they can do in five and that's all I thought about in the beginning is like, okay, the first couple of weeks of, of getting it up and running is going to be challenging. But once everyone knows that Payson has a podcast and, and the opportunity is there to sit down with him, 
I think lining the next person up and the next person up will be pretty easy. And so it was just that first burst of momentum to get you going. And then it take, you know, took on a life of its own. I think those, those early days, you know, there were a lot of different approaches that, and, and paths you could have gone down. And, and this one seemed to be something that was sustainable. Like you're always going to be doing awesome things and around awesome people. And how hard would it be to just record that? You know, like this is pretty, I know there's a lot of work that goes into it, but it's also the elements that, that make podcasts or really any content uh, challenging is being able to go places and connect with interesting people. And that's the one element that I think, you know, all pro athletes in general have at their disposal. And, and that's what makes it easy and interesting to, to capture and, and make it compelling. So I knew that the substance would be no problem at all. It was just a matter of like, once we get it started. And uh, I think you launched around Sea Otter, if I remember right. And I remember yeah, yeah, yeah. just being really excited for that to, to come out. And um, yeah, look at it now, man. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, you mentioning the the aspect of, of getting that first bit of momentum in terms of guests sort of jog my memory. I think that's what finally kind of broke me as, okay, this is a good idea. You put, or at least this will be really fun. You put a list of potential contacts in front of me. And a bunch of them were just people we already knew, people I knew through the Red Bull family. But for some reason, I needed you putting that list in front of me to realize like, oh yeah, okay, I I get this. These are just people that at the Red Bull High Performance Gym or on some sort of you know team building weekend, whatever it is, we're just chatting and, and talking about cool stuff. And, and to us, it, it gets a little bit, I guess, routine in a way. But there are a lot of people that would really like to be a fly on the wall for that sort of conversation. And you really were kind of the, like the shove that gave that momentum and, and have continued that because, I mean, you're the number of people, you know, the number of people you've worked with is just unbelievably extensive. It's just this hilarious, like all star Hall of Fame roster. <laughs> and then another side note, um, I don't know if you'd be interested in talking to this point, but there was a potential opportunity to kind of house it under a pre-existing third party. Like I forget the name of it, but it was some pretty big media conglomerate. Mm -hmm. um, and that was an idea and it was attractive because in a way it sort of would like shortcut a little bit of the process and give more structure. And then your opinion was the phrase you used was no own it like Oprah from day one. It'll require a little bit of extra legwork, but then the sky's the limit and you don't have to answer to anybody. Do you want to talk about that mindset or, or uh, philosophy a little bit at all? Yeah. You know, I have to give credit to Eric Davies from Deity Components. That was something that, that he taught me a long, long time ago, the own it like Oprah mantra. And, and it is kind of looking at the opportunity of, could I take the easy path here? And how much easier would that path have been, really, if you think about it? What would they have done other than maybe put it out in front of a, a slightly wider audience, but you know, you still would have had to, re you would have had to do most of the same work that you do now. And so by putting that sweat equity in on the front end of it and getting the, the ball rolling, you now don't need to rely on anyone else and you own it like Oprah. So it was really just about doing the heavy lifting to start getting the momentum going. And now you don't have to worry about it and you don't have anyone else in control of your decision-making process. There's no one that's gonna wake up and say, oh, budget's cut, Payson's done doing podcasts. Like, that's not a thing. It's your choice, you're in complete control. You can do whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever. So 
yeah. I, I think that was always it from the beginning is how can we make sure that you have the ultimate control over your destiny with this thing as opposed to letting some random person wherever have a say in it that was yeah, really totally that was it <laughs> at at the time i was I, I was somewhat skeptical just because i didn't know but at this point i'm i'm so glad um we ended up going that route um but enough about what i'm doing um <laughs> this is where so I did some, uh, I talked to some people last night and uh, had a couple of phone calls, actually, not just text messages. So if you're quaking in your boots, it's probably for good reason. (laughs) Um, I'm going to preface this by saying you have the dream job of pretty much anyone in sports marketing um, at this point in your life. So we're going to shelve that. And now we're going to talk about your, your past a little bit. I don't know what your first job was, but I know one of your first jobs uh was you were a manager at mcdonald's talk to <laughs> wow <laughs> talk to me talk to me Let, let's go way back in history i want to build a little bit of a timeline here um because this will be of some curiosity people to people you know how how does someone end up in your shoes doing this dream job and i'm almost more interested in like the first 90 percent of that trajectory rather than like how do you interview at Red Bull? I'm less less interested in that. I'm more interested in what were the stepping stones along the way that got you that interview, maybe, if, if that makes sense. So rewinding, you were, uh, I know nothing about your time being a manager at McDonald's. We could talk about that or we, we don't have to talk about that. But somewhere along the way, you transitioned into being a professional trials rider too. So I guess the first thing I'm curious about is how does a manager at McDonald's decide that they want to be a professional trials rider and then actually do it um, at a high level. Well, I have a feeling you're going to be making some calls after this interview and burning some people, but this is how it works. Let's see. Sorry. (laughs) Fair enough. No, I look, I, I started at McDonald's when I was, I think 14 years old. It was like the day that I could get a job. I got a job and I worked in the front and I dealt with customers all day long and you know, I lived in a town in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, with 5,000 people. So there weren't a whole lot of options for jobs. I couldn't go work at Woodward or whatever, right? McDonald's was the spot. And for me, when I started working there, I didn't even ride bikes. I hadn't discovered bikes. It wasn't until about a year and a half later that I did that. It was just kind of like, okay, I'm old enough to work and I'm going to start saving for college. Here's the closest spot. And I like McDonald's, or I did at the time. And (laughs) so I worked there all the way through high school. And the reason I stayed there as long as I did was, A, it was relatively easy. And I learned a lot of basic life lessons. But also the schedule there, I could say, I need to go to this Norba event to go compete. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks. See you guys later. And they're like, all right, cool. Right. We'll add you in the schedule when you get back. So for me, it was like, this opportunity to still make a little bit of money, but but have a flexible schedule so I could go out and compete and and do you know all the things I wanted to do. So that was that was it. And I actually held on to my McDonald's job until after I graduated college. The first month of my first quote unquote real job after college, I was working both because I hadn't put my two weeks notice in or whatever, which is kind of funny to think about. Most people just bolt, but I put in my notice because. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you're a man of integrity. What can I say? <laughs> Putting in your two weeks' notice at McDonald's is do you do you look back on on that time 
maybe you know especially on the customer service front when you were dealing with with uh people at the at the front of the the restaurant um do you look back on on those days as uh valuable learning experiences or was it just sort of a a, a necessary phase to kind of launch into new bigger better things is there any fondness that you look back on Actually, yeah. I mean, I learned to cook at McDonald's, you know. My my foundation for cooking food is from being in the back there for however many years. I mean, sure, it's not like the most complex cooking. I'm I'm no Chris Cosentino, but I learned a lot <laughs> of how to like prepare food because that's essentially what you're doing. You know, the funny thing for me towards my toward the end of the time there was I was a professional trials runner and I was doing big demos at big bike shops or shows or or whatever. And I would be on the weekend at a bike show doing demos, signing autographs, handing out posters and taking pictures and stuff. And, and then like the next day, there would be a customer, maybe the same person screaming at me because I messed up their order. And it was <laughs> such a great way to be humbled to go from taking photos and, and having everyone cheer when you drop off the top of the, the trailer to then like, I didn't get my fries, you know. Um, it taught me a lot. And truthfully, you know, you hear this a lot, but everyone should have some kind of job and service at some point just to appreciate what that person is, is kind of going through and, and learn to treat people right, I guess. Uh, it gave me a, a really great appreciation for everyone in the service industry. So, Yeah. And I know, you, I mean, you still love cooking. Um, one of the things that blows my mind is you you work at, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but you work at such a high capacity and with such output and yet do all of these things like the basic things that people wish they had time for still like cooking reading a ton of books and yet your actual work output is so far beyond most people but you're still fitting in all of these other things that those same people don't have time for somehow which i think is is awesome um i I definitely want to talk about that and, and time management and workflow and all that sort of thing um anyway so let's talk more about the trials career. I, I think it's it's interesting that you, I guess I'm curious why trials, because at any given point, there's maybe, how many professional trials riders do you think there are in the world right now? Like real professional trials riders? Probably like eight, like proper exactly. making a living doing it. Yeah. I mean, but they're Worldwide. all doing, yeah, they're all doing great, which is awesome. Like for sure, when I was when I was riding trials, there weren't a whole lot of people really making a living. It was like Hans Ray, Lieberkaras, Jeff Lenoski. That was about it. And then that was before content, any of the YouTube stuff existed. Now you've got guys like Danny who are absolutely slaying it, you know, and and all the guys that are kind of in that that level. Um, it kind of went from zero to hero in terms of ability to, I guess, make a living. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious in, in a, it, it sounds like it was even a more exclusive, um, caliber that you, that you broke into back then. There's maybe a little bit more opportunity now to do it professionally because of the content world, but what was it about trials riding that, that drew you to it? And then let's maybe talk a little bit about what sort of opportunities came of it, like warped tour and all that sort of thing. Well, the funny thing about trials riding was that it was almost my only option. So when I was 16 years old, I was five foot two and all of my friends got into mountain biking and there were some really fun cross country trails in Wisconsin where I grew up. 
and we would always go there, but I was just not athletically inclined at all. I was tiny. I was weak. I had nothing (laughs) and I could never keep up with any of my friends. So I was a terrible cross country rider. Just, I had not no power whatsoever. And I loved riding bikes, but I couldn't keep up with my friends. I, I just wasn't really having that much fun with them. And I was on this, this road trip with my family and we were in a random campground in Idaho and and I was just doing laps around the little RV park. And this German kid came up to me. He was like, let me see your bike. And he hopped on his back wheel. And I was like, whoa, no way. And he showed me how to do it. And the rest of that two-week vacation with my family, I was trying to hop my back wheel. So that when I got back, I was basically like a full-blown trials rider. And all my friends were like, wait, I can't. You know, they were trying to, <laughs> they were trying to do it. And I had the two-week head start. And so I just like went down that rabbit hole because that was trials is all about technique. You know, it's, it's not so much, I mean, for sure strength has some level to do with it, but, but really it's just technique. And I learned those techniques really quickly and started applying them and and you just keep building on top of it. You start on a curb, then you find a bigger curb, then you find a small loading dock. And for, for my size, I could do all those things. I didn't have to be, you know, six feet tall and, and shredded to do it. I could be five foot two Aaron and learning all the fundamentals. And then I kind of grew up and got better and stronger and turned pro. But really it became, it was my only option. I didn't even know it was an option. Then it became my only option. Then it was all I wanted to do. So that's really how it all began. Yeah. I know you got this opportunity with, I, I think it's still considered the the largest and longest running music festival in North American history. Is that right? Warp Tour? I would imagine it's got to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Just this massive moving circus that had trials riding as part of the, part of the program. Talk to me about, about those days. If there's anything you want to fill in in between, if there's any lead up, you know, to that opportunity, feel free to, to, uh, fill that in. But, um, what was, what was that like? What, what, what was your role there? What was it like to be part of that massive, you know, cultural moment? So leading up to the warp tour, the previous couple of years, I had been doing trials demos at bike shops. And I was, uh, at the time, Jeff Lenoski was helping me out a ton. He kind of gave me the intro into how to set everything up, how to get your, your trailer, your setup. He got me on Schwinn and I would go to Schwinn bike shops and do trials shows like three a day. We'd go to some contests and do the same thing. And you just go around and, you know, it's basic stuff like hopping on your back wheel, jumping over people, like you do crowd stuff or whatever and jump off the trailer at the end of the show was always kind of the the main, you know, whatever. And I'd been doing it for a couple years. He and Ryan Leach were on the Warp Tour at the time, and they were in Chicago, and I came out to see him, and they invited me to ride. And I'd ridden a couple shows with Jeff at that point already. And so I got to ride in the show. We hung out. And the following year, there was another festival that popped up that Jeep was putting on, and both Jeff and Ryan went to do that and uh, vacated the spots for the warp tour. So they put in the word for us to, uh, Dan Drain was the other rider. The two of us went and kind of took their spot on the warp tour for the following two years. And we got to travel. It was, I think it was like 49 days in a row or not in a row. There was maybe like five off days and you would go to sleep in Phoenix and you would wake up you know, in, in LA and then you'd go to sleep in LA and you'd wake up in San Francisco. You'd go to sleep in San Francisco, wake up in Portland. And every day the, the setup would be there and, and you would ride for 
you know, your shows. And, and then the cool part about the warp tour is that all of the, all of the people that were there, whether they were athletes doing their thing or whether they are their musicians, you were all traveling together in this giant caravan. So it was like punk rock summer camp kind of. So I got to go on stage and we'd all be hanging out. We'd fixed the guy from Swing and Utters. They, we fixed bikes and they had a tiki bar on stage that was like a functioning tiki bar. So that's like you'd get on stage for their show and then you'd get free drinks the whole time. It was, it was a sweet way to earn a living during the summer. Um, and also, yeah. I mean, the positive aspect of the Warp Tour, too, is that you were in different city every day, and you'd usually have a couple hours after the show where you could go out and ride. So we'd connected with all these riders from all these different cities, and we'd get to see their best spots. We'd see the best riders in each city, and really just kind of, you know, it was a good way to tour the country and, and get to ride with all kinds of people. So it was exciting. Every day was kind of like a new thing, and just, you know, Steve Cab was on one of the the buses one year so getting to hang out with him for a summer was pretty cool all the guys that were there was just fascinating to hang out with um yeah yeah that's an interesting i was going to bring that up just the educational component of being on that traveling because for all intents and purposes like you're part of the circus mm -hmm. it's sort of like if you're all on a bus driving around different major city you know every couple of days um was there anything being part of, uh, you know, that roving, just like massive energy and passion and people and just doing cool stuff. Was there anything that happens in that phase of your life that you think kind of pushed you towards a career um, in, in more of that sort of thing? Did you, did you meet anyone? Does anyone come to mind that you met or were there any experiences where you thought, you know, I want to be a part of this sort of it, it obviously it's not sports marketing, but in a way it's, it's kind of related. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's really, there were two factors that, that really kind of set me on my course. The first one was being on a bus with, with athletes from different sports and you're spending a lot of time with those people and you get a chance to ask them questions about their sport, take inspiration from what they're doing, how they set up their programs, how they think about everything that they're doing as a pro athlete. And now I do a similar thing where I, you know, have access to athletes from all kinds of different backgrounds and I can take this piece from this athlete and give it to that athlete over there. I was doing that for myself when I was on a bus with all these other athletes. And that really helped me get a broader sense of how all athletes approach sport and, and their job as professional athletes, as opposed to just being in my, my single lane as like a mountain bike trials rider at the time. So that definitely gave me a bit of perspective that helped me go forward. And the other thing, and I know this sounds kind of crazy to out loud, but this guy who was on the tour with us as well, he wasn't an athlete, but he was somebody who was, you know, that we talked to a lot. And, and he said, the one thing you have to understand is that you are entertainment, not just, you know, that you're on the warp tour, but just as an athlete, like, you provide a level of entertainment to the fans. And you have to understand that you are an entertainer on top of being an athlete. And it took a while for that. I mean, it hit me kind of weird at the time and I had a hard time kind of really coming to grips with it. But then as I understood the other elements of how that might play out, I think that really just kind of set me on my course as well. That's when I picked up a camera and started filming my riding. That's when I started thinking about all the other ways that as a professional athlete, I could be interesting or useful or, or 
yeah, make an impact in general is thinking about my job as an athlete as also an entertainer and what does that mean? It sounds it sounds weird, I think, you know, like I doubt many athletes think of themselves in that way. But if you take a step back and understand, I mean, it's it's a positive it's a positive way to frame things up. And if you understand that, it helps you kind of build out the rest of the the ecosystem, I guess, for lack of a better term. No, it's so true. I think that is such an important point. And um, for some reason, not everyone will appreciate this analogy, but it for whatever reason, basketball analogies always come into my head. And one one thing I think of is you take a, a LeBron James versus someone like Kawhi Leonard. Who, theoretically, they're about the same level player, but LeBron is this massive icon, global icon that has literally changed the course of culture. Um, and he understands that aspect of being an entertainer. And someone like Kawhi takes half the games off every year for load management so that he's better in the playoffs. And half the time the fans pay hard-earned money to go watch his team play and he's not even playing that game. Um, or I think of someone like, uh, you know, good old Portland Trailblazers, your home team, Damian Lillard, absolute crowd favorite, will just jack up shots from half court. Like it's not terribly necessary, but people love him for it. And he's a legend. Um, and his opportunities are, are, are bigger um, because of it. So it's interesting that you recognize that way back when. Um, I also heard that you were one of the first people, according to this source, to have a website. And so it's interesting that um, you, it sounds like you, you heard that guidance, whether it was from that guy specifically or, you know, bits and pieces here and there and really took it to heart and started investing time and effort um, into developing that part of your life. I assume you had that website while you were still writing trials professionally. Was it related to that? Yeah, it was all trials related. That's, that's awesome. It's, um, yeah, one of my friends was a web developer and, and offered to kind of build the site and work on the, you know, it was kind of something that he was working on developing that skill as well. And, and so it was kind of a project for him. And then I was the content that kind of, we worked together to make it happen. Um, it was AaronLutzi.com. I don't know who owns that that now. There's a <laughs> there's another. Let's pull it up. <laughs> there was actually like a a computer coding teacher in Australia with the same name who I think I transferred the domain to him because we were like sort of friends, and uh, yeah. I transferred it to him so he could have his like coding portfolio. But who knows what's on it now? But yeah, that was nothing. That was you can have it back. There's nothing. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was. That would have been that would have been like two thousand that I had the website. Wow. Or maybe ninety yeah. maybe nineteen ninety nine. So it was super That's amazing. super early on in, in all internet everything and and to to my friend Jason's credit, he made it so easy where I just wrote the title and I wrote the the story and then I would send him pictures and he would figure out a way to make it work. When I eventually started match video zine, jumping ahead a little bit, a couple of years. I took that same kind of knowledge base and built my own website for Match. And the first version of Match Videos in that website was black and white, text only, with just text links to pictures that would pop up. And we had thousands <laughs> of people coming in to like see, because it was really like what I was posting was more like the behind the scenes action for, you know, the beginning of the free ride movement. And so it was more like, I don't know, not like party photos, but like, yeah, we're walking the course, we're checking out this spot, we're going to this dirt jump setup, whatever. And, 
yeah, I, I took a lot of the learning that I had from that original website and plugged it in a couple of years later, which, yeah, it was early days as well. That would have been like 2003. Yeah. I'll I'll blow my sources cover as you might be able to predict. It was Eric Porter who tipped me off to that. That's awesome. Um, good, good mutual friend and also uh, an alum of the podcast. But um, his comment was, he, he was almost in awe that you had the website. He said, the way he put it was, yeah, Aaron had this website kind of before people even knew what websites were. And so sometimes it seemed like he was kind of explaining what the website was, which is just so, it's so cool to me because like you've carried that forward. I mean, at the, at this point in your career, you're still on the cutting edge of what it means to be an entertainer, to um, help others uh, kind of redefine um, and revolutionize what it means to uh, to do cool stuff, to make cool stuff, to inspire. And, uh, it, it's so cool to me that back, you know, 99, 2000, whatever it was, you were doing that yourself. Um, that's a theme we'll come back to cause you've carried that through your entire life just in terms of like immersing yourself in, um, in this job and, and literally sometimes doing the things that your athletes do. So you can have a better idea of how to do your job. Um, let's talk about that that match video zine a little bit. What, what was that? Like, what was the motivation? What was happening culturally that, that inspired you to take on that project? (laughs) Nothing was happening culturally. And maybe that was part of it. (laughs) There was, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Trials was definitely not getting the attention that I thought it deserved. Um, there was one other film that came out around that same time called revolution, which was amazing. and, And still to this day, one of the best trials videos ever made. Um, at the time I was in college and my college roommate saw me riding and doing demos and stuff and was like, Hey, I, I have this editing software on my computer. I, I could go out on campus with you and we could like shoot some stuff and then we'll come back and edit it. So I took my roommate out on campus, did some stuff. We came back. I watched him edit over his shoulder and I was like, Oh, I could for sure do this. And so I, I got a camera and every time I went on a trip, I would just film my friends riding and then I'd hand them the camera to film me ride. And then we'd start putting stuff together. And eventually we had enough to kind of put a video together. And I just put out match video scene as a kind of like, here's what's happening in the scene right now. I went to all these contests. I went and rode with all these people. I tried to make it kind of like a like props in BMX is kind of a similar thing. So I'd seen props for years before that and was like, I could kind of do a similar kind of vibe with, with this, but for trials. And the response was pretty good. And, and so I just kept doing it. I worked on the second one and immediately as, as soon as I released the first one, just, I knew I wanted to do that. Like, this is sweet. I have a reason beyond just my riding to go out there and do these things. I have a reason to be there. I have a way to put my friends on a elevated platform that they wouldn't have had, you know, um, at, at the time, the best way to get known was to be on this like email list, like, Oh, that's the dude from the mailing list. So the fact that you could, and, and at the time also like the internet, you could download like this tiny little pixelated version of a guy hopping on a back wheel. That was as much as you could get. This is way before YouTube. So yeah, it was just a way to put people on a bigger radar on a, a bigger platform. And, and a lot of the trials riders at the time were getting into, you know, riding it on street and skate parks and starting to do free ride stuff. And so around match three and match four, we started kind of going in that direction as well, because that was where everyone was. And we met all these new people, guys like Aaron Chase were doing their thing. And 
Um, I got connected with Don Hampton and we just kind of everything just started happening. And I still tried to maintain with match videos in a way to take riders who deserve to be in videos and, and, and known on a, on a wider level and give them that highlight. You know, I filmed with guys like Brandon Semenuk well before they were shooting the stuff that they're doing now. He must have been 15 or 16 the first time we shot together. So it was a way for me to, to find new talent and then to put them on a, on a bigger radar and then make sweet content and, and travel around. And we got to do so many cool things. And it's amazing how many of the people that I filmed way back then are still absolutely destroying. So, um, but to be there at the beginning of free ride was such a cool moment. And, you know, everybody was down for the cause and, you know, sleeping on each other's floors and, and anything we could do to survive. Cause we just wanted to see this thing grow. So that was yeah. from day one. And then eventually that, kind of developed into uh your time with freecaster tv um how did that come about so for those that don't know freecaster tv uh was it the direct precursor to to red bull's involvement with the world cup series or was there an intermediary there uh it was the foundation we'll say there was like one company that got the rights for a year or something and it was i'm not sure what happened and then red bull took it over so Freecaster launched at the same time as YouTube and Freecaster's plan was just to have quality sports content only. There was there wasn't like you could upload whatever. You had to kind of be tapped to to upload things to it. And it was event highlights, they began live streaming events pretty early on. All that stuff was pretty cutting edge. And the funny way that I got involved with Freecaster I was in Italy at this event called Red Bull District Ride where they shut down an entire city and they put a free ride course through the middle of it. And I was at a media dinner the night before the event and I was sitting at a table with a bunch of other people from the media group. And someone had mentioned, hey, you should put your your videos on Freecaster. And I was like, ah, I can't get Freecaster to work on my Mac. I don't know about that site. And it turned out that the guy I was talking to was Raymond the guy who started Freecaster. So to his credit, he took advantage of the opportunity to to fill me in on that the website was created on a Mac and for Macs and that it must have been my internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> and he really, you know, in the following years kind of took me under his wing and, and gave me a lot of opportunities to film on behalf of Freecaster. And that that turned into the UCI World Cups. And we started all of it with uh, Rob Warner. You know, I was there on Rob Warner's first day broadcasting UCI. Um, it, I have photos of the setup that we had. It was maybe like a 10-inch TV, black and white, on a card table in the back of a sprinter van with all the doors closed, a couple, couple beers, if I remember right, and uh, <laughs> and just warner screaming at the screen and that getting broadcast <laughs> i think that was i want to say it was 2008 and uh yeah i mean i wasn't i wasn't even filming digital i still had mini dv tapes at that point point. Uh, we didn't have rob wasn't necessarily set as the main guy so i had like brian lopes was doing interviews with people uh actually interviewed Bryn atkinson there which is awesome nice the first one we did was in Slovenia and, and I, I hadn't really shot a lot of racing at that point. I was a free ride and trials guy. And 
I just kind of got put into it because they needed a mountain bike filmer to do it. And I went from not really knowing much to being in the pits with Petey and Sam Hill and Greg Menard and all these guys and, and interviewing them. And, and truthfully, like as time went on, you know, and Rob really kind of found his stride, he was the, the main person because he grew up racing with all those guys. And so he could go right up to Petey and ask him a question or, you know, yeah, he was able to get in there for, for uh, those tough questions with people and, and they respected him and, yeah, it was no problem. So he really kind of set that whole thing on the course that it was. But it definitely wasn't without, you know, <laughs> struggle, let's say. Uh, yeah, that's one 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 follow-up question I was going to ask is day one Freecaster to the, you know, the juggernaut that um, Red Bull TV is now in regards to broadcasting the World Cup series in those early days, other than that, you know, picture you painted for us with the card table and the little black and white TV in the back of a sprinter van. Are there any other funny anecdotes that come to mind or moments of struggle, pivot points um, that thinking back now, you're just like, man, I'm, I'm glad we stuck it out. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, there's probably a whole podcast worth of stories to tell. I think the, the one, the, the height of the struggle was, you have to understand like when we when we did this there was no sponsor we were just doing it because it was the right thing to do there weren't brands coming in to help support the cost of this and the most expensive thing was satellite time so we're uplinking to the satellite and that goes out to the live stream so everyone can be at home watching this thing live on on the internet and we were in andorra and if you remember it was the year that rachel dan angie all won Yep. Four cross and two downhills, right? Right. So at that point, Dan had won the four cross. Rachel had won the women's downhill and G was on track and he had qualified first. So he was then the last person to race. It was really muddy in Andorra that year and any conditions like that slow down your times overall. And so the window of satellite time that we had purchased was finite and we always had a bit of a buffer at the end to make sure we could do a post-race kind of wrap up and whatever. But because it was so muddy and everyone was riding so slow, that window got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And so we're at the end of the race. G is on track. And it's if we were to buy another increment of, of satellite time, it was going to be 4,000 euros. Now, we're not making any money at this point we're just doing it for the love and because of the vision and four thousand euros is a lot of dough for like maybe we need it maybe we can get by like how fast is she gonna go (laughs) so this is incredible so we're in we're in the booth like okay i think i think this is gonna work uh you know and and we're anticipating the internet firestorm you know balancing out like is it worth four grand? And G's coming down kind of the finish shoot and it cuts off. No way. And the internet goes berserk. <laughs> Whoa, that's so gnarly. Yeah, I mean, and what can you do? Did, you know, no one understands. The people at home didn't understand the, the backstory of like, we're doing this for you for free. And no one's giving us any money. We're just literally paying money out like crazy to get it done. Um, yeah, it's 
That's hilarious. <laughs> so legendary. I th- what, what do you feel like was the breakthrough for that, um, for Freecaster? I think it was just repetition. You know, the the next year people came to rely on on that is like, well, of course this is a thing that exists, you know, and yeah, to, to Raymond's credit, you know, he just, he believed in the vision too and, and just wanted to see this thing happen and, and, you know, continue to support us and support the, the process. You know, Warner spent a lot of time actually developing his skills as, as a presenter as well. It was, it definitely wasn't like something that came a hundred percent natural like he he worked and worked and worked i mean he was great on camera no matter what but we were always thinking about like what other stuff can we do how can we make this better how can we improve that and i think it was just this like constant iteration to make it better and better but yeah i mean you know the the riders really made it special and they all appreciated what we were doing and you know it was benefiting all of them too because now they had like hey we're we're being live streamed now at that point that didn't exist like before freecaster showed up you couldn't watch every single world cup race on the internet that wasn't a thing. So for every athlete that was racing World Cup to now say, oh, well, every weekend, hundreds of thousands of people are tuning in to, to see me race, like that means something to their partners and doubly so if they win or end up on the podium. So I think there was like real value that was being brought to the sport through all that. Yeah. Uh, one other anecdote I just want to share, because this was the, the, the Atherton thing was definitely like the biggest, I don't know, headache of the whole deal but maybe like the most anxiety invoking moment of the whole thing uh we had we always had like a pro racer come and do the interviews as people were coming out of the hot seat for a race and um we were in italy for the world championships and rachel atherton was actually doing the interviews of everyone as they came out of the the pit or sorry out of the hot seat which was awesome because she had just won the world championship for downhill and steve pete was in the hot seat and it was sam hill came and and did that you know like big blowout corner at the end which everybody has imprinted on their memory forever and we all were like oh my god it's gonna happen pd is finally gonna win the world championship like here we go like this is gonna be the best interview it's gonna be amazing well there was one rider to go at the top of the hill and it's g atherton and Rachel Atherton is sitting here looking at me like, okay, uh, you know, like I got to interview whoever comes out of the gate here, right? So G comes down, absolutely slays it, wins the world championships. You know, it is such a difficult thing because you're excited for G, but you're also like, oh, it was so close. And, uh, and I mean, that was the time when Sam Hill was just unstoppable too. So for him, yeah. And, uh, and so PD, you know, stands up real slow out of the hot seat and Rachel and I are looking at each other just like, oh, and she looks at me and says, do, do I need to interview him? I was like, we have to do it. Like we can't, this is the moment we have to, we have to talk to him. And so PD comes walking out and, and Rachel is just like, I'm so sorry. Will you, and to, to PD's credit, 100% on point, gives this perfect interview, super gracious to G and Sam and everyone and, and uh, you know, takes his silver medal and, and continues on and, and, you know, obviously ends up winning it the next year, which is amazing, but that was such a tough one. <laughs> uh, all in the family. Um, so I want to touch on one more 
little nugget, little tip off that I was given in regards to, I guess, your life before Red Bull, we might call it. Although, I'm not sure if this was before Red Bull, but Porter tipped me off that there may be a good story involving you getting lost on an African game reserve at one point. Oh, man. By yourself at night, lions circling. Yeah. Well, (laughs) since... So now we've crossed the threshold of I can never share this podcast with my mom. <laughs> this, Give us this, a timestamp here. Is this is this pre Red Bull? Yes, yes. Okay. This is uh, this is actually the year before I came to Red Bull, and, and this is actually what what uh, kind of pushed me in the direction of changing jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so so to preface this, uh, my mom doesn't know this story, and I never told my dad before he passed. So this is, uh, yeah, if you run into my mom randomly, never tell her, please. I was on a trip with uh, a brand and some of the riders that I was managing at the same time, and I was filming for the trip. And uh, Hans Ray was there, Sven Martin was there, um, and yeah, a couple of athletes were, were riding. And we got to this game reserve in Botswana later in the day than we had expected. And we tried to ride and film a little bit and it got to the point where the sun was coming down and, and it was like, hey, we got to just hop in the truck and go back to the to the campsite that we're staying tonight and we got to move to the next spot. It was kind of a point-to-point safari on mountain bikes. It was really cool, or it was supposed to be. And the truck ended up filling up with all of the gear and bikes and all this stuff. And so the guides decided that they needed to take a couple people on bike to ride to the spot instead of everybody riding in the truck. And because I'd had a big camera bag on all day and hadn't really gotten to ride in Botswana, I put my bag with all my stuff on it in this truck and offered to be one of the people to ride. Now for this mountain bike safari, there's a person in the front who has an elephant rifle strapped to their back and there's a person in the back with the same and they're there to protect you for anything that comes at you while you're riding if anything were to which thankfully up until that point nothing had so we start riding and and also for context i'm not riding my bike i'm just riding the super clapped out rental bike that the game reserve had available everyone else had their bikes but I wasn't a sponsored athlete at that point. So I was just riding whatever. It had bald tires and it was all beat up and whatever. So we start riding in a line to the campground and we get to this kind of set of rolling hills and the, the trails there are just kind of like a, like a loose gravel pack. And I go up and I, I spin out on one of the hills because I was literally riding gravel and bald tires. And I grab my bike and I run to the top of the hill and I see the riders kind of descending and getting ready to climb the next rolling hill. I look behind me and the guide was like messing with his derailleur or something. So I was like, all right, I can catch these guys, no problem. So I bomb down the hill, I pin it up the next hill, get to the top of that hill, I can see them climbing the next hill. I rinse and repeat the next hill. I get to the top of that hill and I I don't see him. Oh, they must be over that next hill. I go over the next hill, don't see him. Man, they're really pinning it. What I didn't realize is that at the bottom of that hill, there was a a full switchback and that took him right to the camp. And I was so far ahead of the other guide who was in the back that he just assumed that I was with the rest of the group. And so I'm riding in the opposite direction of all the guides and the entire team at dusk in an African game reserve, 
filled with pretty much everything that can kill you. All the, you know, black mamba snakes, lions, you know, whatever. So I ride for quite a while, just like, man, I'm fully pinned trying to catch up. And I come to this water bar and I, I stop and I look and I realize that there aren't any bike tracks like on the other side of the water. And I was like, okay, I blew it. So I start screaming, yo, yo, trying to maybe get their attention or whatever. I later found out that they could hear me screaming and they were screaming back to me, but I couldn't hear them. And I stopped screaming to get back on my bike to ride back in the opposite direction, which I'm not sure is the right move, but I did it anyway. And when I stopped screaming and got back on my bike, they heard at the camp, they heard hyenas. So at that point, Hans and Sven and everybody assumed that I had, you know, that I died. Fuck. So I rode back in the direction I came. It's now dark outside. You're in the middle of nowhere, Botswana. It's not like there's a road. The, the trail we were on was pretty much just like, it wasn't really a trail. <laughs> and so I kept riding. I'd stop every now and then. You know, I couldn't see anything. There was no light on the bike, obviously. I uh, crashed a bunch of times. I saw this light in the distance. I was like, all right, I guess that's the closest thing I can find. And so I just started riding in the direction of that. And at that point, I was like, I'm probably going to die. Like, there's lions here. It's dusk, like, or it's dark now, you know, like everything's out that's going to kill you. Uh, this is probably were you not. Hear, were you hearing stuff? Because oh, yeah. everything I've heard from that part of the world at, at night, it's just the, the number and amount of different noises is really unnerving. Yeah, you can hear everything. And there's plenty of, I mean, it's a game reserve. It's meant to be chock full of animals. <laughs> So, so I saw this light and I was like, all right, I'm either going to make it to this light and hopefully there's somebody there or I'm going to get eaten, but I don't have any choice. I may as well just like soldier on. And at that point I, I had this weird calm. Like if I, if this is how I go out, like, so be it, I guess I, this is, yeah, at, at least it's interesting. <laughs> so Jeez. I make it to this, this light and it was, it was just like a light post, but it was near a bigger access road. And at that point, they had all of the rangers out looking for me and stuff. And this ranger came along the road and like, get in, you know, I got in the truck and he drove me literally one minute <laughs> to, to like a, to some kind of cabin of some sort. And they like, they, you know, got me in there, got me some water, got me, you know, like radioed in to let them know they found the guy. And they're like, you probably should have died, you know. And so got back to the, the camp, met up with everybody. Everybody's in tears because they thought I was for sure dead. And uh, <laughs> we had a couple of beers that night. And uh, yeah, I was, I was sharing a tent with Sven Martin, who's from South Africa. He's like, hey, I've, I've been on a couple of these and, and, and heard all the stories. Like, there's no way you should have lived through that. Like, that's not, that's not a situation that people come back from. And, and in most game reserves like that, like people get taken out like, rangers or whatever get taken out on a somewhat regular basis even in broad daylight so to have survived that window and and to totally helpless was a big stroke of luck i'd say dude that's <laughs> crazy was that the most scared you've been do you think for sure or it or it or in the moment where you was it more just reactionary and just problem solving i think it's a little bit of everything it's weird because I think I got scared and then you go past that to a point where you get calm, where you're like, I have no control over this situation and I'm just going to do what I can do. And 
it's out of my hands at this point, you know. Um, yeah, it was a wild, you know, experience. So uh, I got back from Africa and decided that maybe traveling around the world and putting myself in those situations needed to go on pause for a little bit. And as I landed in America, I had a voicemail from one of my friends that worked at Red Bull. I was like, hey, there's a bunch of jobs open, dude. And I was like, yep, that's it. That's that's me. <laughs> and that was well, really... A, a, fine, a fun side note is uh, I also heard that you, putting you on the spot here a little bit, of my, I don't know if this will embarrass you or not. I think it's, it's pretty cool. But you had uh, some kind of, Porter couldn't quite, this might ruin your and Porter's relationship, just all of these things that he's putting you through. But he, he described some sort of like jersey or shirt that was Red Bull branded that you had before you worked for Red Bull. And he, he said you just wore it all the time and you were an absolute Red Bull super fan. And it was your dream to work for Red Bull. And then here you are. What you, are you on year eight now? Uh, 11. I just passed 11. You're 11. Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. Um, I mean, here you are and, and, and you now have your, you've had your dream job for a while. Um, there aren't many people that can say that without going too much into the interview process and all that sort of thing. Walk me through what it was like when you, when you heard that voicemail, you know, you presumably applied for some jobs. Um, what did it feel like to actually finally be on this path of, wow, I might get this ultimate dream to actually come to fruition? Up until that point, thanks, Porter. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to rub it in a tiny bit more. He said, I can't remember the words exactly, but he, was said, he said it was something like a kid who has a favorite basketball or football team and just wears the jersey of their favorite player all the time. <laughs> He can said you, it was just short of you sleeping in it. <laughs> can you blame me? No, uh, <laughs> no, absolutely not. Everyone listening is going to be is going to understand, but I just I love it because it actually has that perfect ending, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was given to me by somebody that worked at Red Bull. It was for their soccer team and and uh that was as close as I was going to get to being Red Bull branded. <laughs> but uh, you know, at, truthfully I had always been a student of the brand and, and, you know, they were doing so many interesting and exciting and brand new things. I mean, Red Bull was, you know, at that time, especially just like breaking ground and blowing minds every day. And, and I was just taking as much as I could learn from it and applying it to all the things that I was doing. And Raymond Deleuze, the guy that started Freecaster, was the original athlete marketing director at Red Bull. And so I had this kind of mentor who had come from Red Bull. So like all these elements in my life had some tie to the brand. And yeah, I was just a huge fan so that when I did finally come to work at Red Bull, everybody was like, well, obviously, you know, um, you know, I relied on the product, you know, what I was doing for Freecaster, I would, you know, leave on a Tuesday or Wednesday, fly to Europe, land, start shooting, hiking up and down a mountain, then get home at night, edit all the footage, upload the footage, go to sleep, wake up every single day, rinse and repeat. You hit send on the final export after the race is over and then you sleep on the flight home. So I was like (laughs) ripping through Red Bull as a video editor and shooter and all that stuff. I mean, it was part of every facet of my life at that point. And I guess still, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, You know, I guess to, to answer your question, I think that when I 
finally did get hired by Red Bull, it's the same feeling that you probably had when you got your first helmet. You know, it's like part validation of your hard work. Like what I was doing was, you know, the right thing and, and is valuable to someone other than me. And also motivation of like, oh, I work for Red Bull now. Like it's it's time. Like I got to send it. I got to do my absolute best stuff. And now I have the opportunity to follow in the footsteps of all those people that blew my mind in the past. So it's like a little half and half, I guess. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I'm having a moment where I'm really frustrated with what time of day the clock is telling me because I have a call in 15 minutes. So we're <laughs> going to do another one of these, but I want to transition into, if that's okay with you, but I want to transition into um, your role now um, and some questions, acknowledgement, nice things that some of your athletes have submitted in the last 24 hours. Um, just quickly, I want to I run through, uh, well, you, you were my marketing manager for about a year and a half, maybe, I want to say. Um, and then there was some restructuring, and now I'm with OC. Um, but can we quickly run through some of the, the athletes that you, that you manage? Sure. Um, so Rebecca Rush, I'm going to read something from her in just a minute. Uh, Kate Courtney. Carson Storch, um, obviously one of the best free riders in the world. Um, Lauren Much, who's basically the Michael Jordan of roller derby. Um, Dylan Bowman, a good mutual friend of ours, incredible ultra runner, uh, also has a podcast of his own now uh, called The Well. Shout out to him. Go check that out. Um, Jill Kittner. Um, who else? You pick it up from here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had a chance to work with a ton of amazing athletes. I mean, um, the list is long and, and also, you know, just outside of my own roster, you know, all the other athletes around the world that, that are Red Bull, you know, guys like Kenny Belay, who, you know, he's a Belgian guy, but comes over to the States. He and I started the, uh, the NBA halftime show gig together. You know, I brought him into San Francisco and he did something for the Golden State Warriors. And then, you know, now he travels all over the place to all the NBA games and does trial shows and stuff like that. So that's really the cool part about it all is that, you can work beyond your roster as well and, and get a chance to do cool things with all kinds of other athletes. But yeah, that's a really uh, good, that's, I appreciate you saying that because I mean, you and I still work together for sure. Yeah. I think that's, that's one thing that I love about the Red Bull family is it's just this massive cooperative ecosystem. Um, and yeah, there's different defined roles, but to an extent or not to an extent, it very much is just a massive family. Um, and so even though you and I aren't exchanging emails and text messages, you know, maybe daily anymore. Um, we still talk almost every week and I, I love that. It's, it's so cool. So anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. You're stuck with me, man. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So quickly, uh, since we're coming down to the wire here for this first episode one, um, I want to read something that Rebecca wrote about you. How can he be so enlightened enlightened to give the gifts to his athletes and support us and be so happy to be behind the scenes? He's a true Buddha. Um, and that's one thing that that really sticks out for me too is like your willingness to constantly be this uh, person that elevates and provides opportunity. And you hardly ever get any acknowledgement of your own 
outside of, you know, the core group that you're involved in. But so many things, whether it's Blood Road, whether it's, you know, being part of the early days of Rampage, uh, whether it be, you know, stuff with the white rim that we did, whatever it is, um, those things wouldn't have happened without you. And all of the public acknowledgement goes to the athlete and you're, you're fine with that. Um, talk to me about, uh, what it's, how much of a, what, what is the satisfaction like, or, or what is the feeling you get when one of your athletes has a major win, whether it be an actual race victory, like Kate winning the world championships or some sort of huge project like Rebecca's blood road come to fruition. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty epic to be on the front in the front row, you know, of all of these different projects and, and big wins and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's really special to be in the position that, that I'm in and, and I definitely don't take it for granted. I think that it's, you know, it's on, on me to try to bring as much as I possibly can to every relationship that I have and, and the, the winning or the, the, you know, end result is really just a byproduct of that. And it's exciting and it's cool to be on the team, to be able to celebrate that and, and know, you know, in your heart that you had, had an involvement in that process, but yeah, there's no better feeling than seeing your friends succeed. And, and ultimately that's what it boils down to. Like, I just want to see all my friends win. And, uh, it's a, intoxicating feeling you know and and the more effort i put in the better chances they're going to have to win and that's really what it kind of boils down to i i love trying to find something that maybe someone hadn't considered or somebody hadn't thought of or looking at something a new way or you know um just opening a new perspective for for an athlete that i work with or something like that you know i i heard rebecca mention on uh, the last podcast that i'd i'd sent her a book the obstacle is the way. And, and, uh, yeah, it was just my, my opportunity to, you know, be a different voice. You know, she's got a coach who's telling her how to do all of her workouts. You know, she's got all these other people that are doing the more technical stuff. And what I love about everything I do is being the person who can take a step back, see the bigger picture of what they're doing and try as hard as I possibly can to find that one extra thing that I could just add on top of that. Cause I can't write a training plan, but I can pull a book from here and, and give it to you. And maybe that's the thing you needed more than, than anything else, you know? And, uh, or, you know, maybe it's just perspective in general or, or perspective from another sport that may apply. There's so many different ways I could come in and, and just give that extra like 1%. And that's what gets me excited is, is hunting down what that would be for each person and delivering. Yeah. Um, she has a follow-up question here. Well, I guess the first wasn't a question, but one of her, Rebecca absolutely leapt at the opportunity to, to be a part of this conversation. It's one reason that I, I wish we had another half hour right now, but um, she wants to know what the hardest ride or run is that you've ever done with one of your athletes. And we should quickly point out that somewhat unusually, you immerse yourself in pretty much all of the things that your athletes do. So take Dylan Bowman, for example. Um, you're an incredible ultra runner in your own right. And Dylan uh, legitimately, I think, legitimately enjoys running with you because you're at a level where y'all can actually run together and have it be enjoyable. You have this amazing mountain bike background. Uh, Rebecca, Michelle Parker, you and I went on this awesome mountain bike ride uh, right after Red Bull Rampage um, a couple years ago. That was really memorable. So you have all of these skill sets um, that allow you to better understand what your athletes are doing and going through. 
Um, so that's a little bit what that that question is is relating to. So what is what is the hardest bike ride or, or run you've done with one of your athletes? I think the the most hmm, there's a lot of different ways to to approach that. I think the the hardest one recently was we ran around Mount St. Dylan Bowman and I ran around Mount St. Helens together on the Lewitt trail. So it's like 32 miles and the last mile and a half, there's like a thousand foot climb. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, we did it not too long ago. And, you know, through the last year of purgatory, essentially, I haven't really been able to do a whole lot of running. So we pretty much ran an ultra off the couch, um, and there was like one waterfall along the way to fill up water. So we definitely rolled the dice a little bit, but uh, it was beautiful. I mean, to see Mount St. Helens up close and all that, it was pretty, pretty special. And to do it with Dylan, you know, I mean, he was the reason why I started ultra running in the first place. And he has been my coach this whole time, giving me kind of stuff. I mean, that the whole point for that too was like being Neo in the Matrix, you know, like I know Kung Fu. I can just reach out to the best athlete in any sport and just ask for them to help me learn it and it's a opportunity for us to kind of you know grow together and for me to grow personally as an athlete you know like oh I can just pick up this sport real quick I can know automatically what the right gear is how to train for it how to think about it how to race it and um, it was a cool way to kind of leapfrog my way through all these different sports and pick up stuff and just get a better understanding of how everything comes together I've learned so much from every single athlete I've had a chance to work with and yeah, I'm glad I took advantage of it because it would have been easy not to. Yeah, um, that was actually the prompt that that Dylan um, gave me too was ask him asking about our Mount St. Helens lap. Um, <laughs> here's a so this is pretty funny. It's a bit tug in cheek, but both Jill and Kate asked pretty much the same question. Um, well, they both asked multiple questions, but one question that they asked that was the same is pretty funny. Jill says. Who is his favorite athlete? $50 says it's everyone. $100 says it's Kate. Winky face. <laughs> Kate says, Kate says this came in as we were recording just now. Who's his favorite athlete to work with? Is it me? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, but quickly, I'll, I'll ask a serious question on their behalf. Jill would love to know, and for those, I don't know, how you would not know you must be living under a rock which is fine but jill is many time world champion uh, on the mountain bike won just about everything obviously many time national champion absolute legend of the sport um she would like to know if you have a sports marketing hero um, or maybe just a, a mentor that comes to mind more generally speaking wow that's a really great question i think i think raymond from Freecaster, from Red Bull, from everything was absolutely my, my original mentor, my original hero still to this day. I mean, he set in motion a lot of the things that we do, you know, 20 years later and, uh, or, or even longer maybe, but he, he really kind of the way that he thought about things, the way that he set things up to be able to set up a marketing program that would still be relevant 30 years later is kind of crazy. And, uh, especially in sports where things change so rapidly. I think that's been my favorite part of all the stuff I get to do now is to like continue that on and kind of carry the, carry the banner a little bit for the things that he set in motion. So the way that he even thought about Freecaster back in the day of 
you know what, these events are great, but wouldn't it be cool if the rest of the world could watch it live? Um, I'm going to make that happen. Like, what? Uh, I would say he's for sure my hero. Yeah. And also, uh, Jill's original question, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) $50 wins. Um, Okay, one from Kate. I actually haven't even read this question yet. It's it's sort of long, but um, she says, here's my real question. Your job involves a lot of adaptability working with athletes across a variety of sports and with a constantly evolving landscape of sports media and performance. This is the most K question ever. It also requires staying true to the Red Bull brand and vision. What is the biggest pivot or change you've seen in the last 10 years? What advice do you have for balancing the need to evolve and grow while remaining true to a central brand or vision? Is that too too close to... Is that too touchy? Is that uh, giving too much away? I potentially, think I, I think we can we can we can work okay. with this. Cool. That's a another great question, and, and I think I don't know if I could answer necessarily how a brand would would take that, but I think the biggest development I see is how athletes are kind of taking control of everything. You know, you look all the way up to LeBron James with what he's doing with uninterrupted and and just with his platform in general, right? all the way to, yeah, everyone starting, you know, YouTube channels, uh, podcasts, you know, really kind of taking control of their output and their platform beyond just, I show up and win races. I think that's the biggest thing. And and now, and especially in the last 10 years, all the tools are becoming readily available for every athlete, no matter if they're a world champion or just starting out to access and to, to play with and, and develop. And it's leveling the playing field in certain ways where you don't, necessarily even need to be the world champion to have the, a big following or, or something along those lines. So I think as athletes control their platform and, and develop their platforms, that's where things start to get really exciting. And for sure, there's opportunities for brands and, and other people to be involved. But I think that's the major development that's kind of happened because before that, they were reliant on the event organizer or something like that to, to get their work out. Um, with exception of maybe Hans Ray back in the day, he was the original guy that was out creating content and doing interesting things and, and sharing stories and telling stories and delivering photos and videos and stuff like that. Um, but really now everyone's kind of followed in that footsteps and, and um, built their brand and, and all that kind of stuff. That's definitely the biggest thing I've seen. Yeah. Um <clears throat> So we're definitely going to have to do another one of these because I got through about half of my questions. Um, but I, I want to quickly touch on, so we talked earlier about how you oftentimes will immerse yourself in um, your your athlete's sport. Um, but recently, you've sort of immersed yourself in that other side of things that you just mentioned, the content side of things. You have your own YouTube series now, um, a project that you've taken on during this pandemic year. Talk to me a little bit about the motivation behind that and, and what you're doing and where people can check it out. So the, the channel is called Lutzi Time. And yeah, during the last year, I've picked up my trials bike a lot and, and ridden and just kind of brushed off the dust of everything. You know, my background as a videographer and editor kind of plays well into creating content for YouTube. And like I just was talking about of you know building platforms and understanding content and all that stuff i think for me understanding how youtube works and how that whole platform 
does its thing, the easiest way for me to learn it would be to do it. And I think as a trial starter, there's a lot of things that I do that maybe aren't in everyone's knowledge base that I can share out with everybody, whether it's techniques for riding or, or even, you know, the last one I posted was how to work with a professional photographer, you know, just like the key insights that like you kind of learn as you go along or, or maybe you don't know and you've blown all those rules, but yeah, there's knowledge that I've, that I've built over the years that I'd love to share. And, and YouTube's a great place to do that. And it's a good way to just learn that as other athletes are developing their channels. I can provide insight and stuff like that, but I've got years and years of content that I've been just kind of, uh, you know, re-editing and sharing out from early days of free riding. And then, um, yeah, I've been doing a bunch of trials riding lately. That's still good. So just, uh, putting it out there, learning as much as I possibly can, both on the bike and off and sharing as much as I can. It's been a good experience. And honestly, like having a creative outlet during this time has been really helpful. Just, you know, something to really focus your energy on outside of everything else that's going on. Yeah. That's cool. Um, well, next week, let's do another one or two weeks <laughs> from now, whenever we're both available again. Because, I mean, I didn't even get to all of our athlete questions. Lauren Much wants to know what the most rebellious thing is that you've done as a teenager. I thought that was a great oh, question. Man. We haven't talked about books. We haven't talked about just time management. I think that's got to be one of the most fascinating things for listeners. And one of the most unique things about you is just your ability to have such an insane output. Um and and still maintain uh, a beautiful family. I mean, your kids are are awesome. I love hanging out with your kiddos. Uh, your wife is is a super high powered professional, also and doing amazing things. Like, how do you balance that family dynamic with self education? I mean, you have this crazy bookshelf behind you, and then all of this other work that we've been talking about for the last hour and a half. I mean, it's it's really mind blowing. So I want to jump into that next time, um, and. Next one we do schedule, I'm going to schedule two hours instead of an hour and a half because apparently we need it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for everything. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. Thank you all for listening and thank you to Zwift for being presenting partner of the Adventure Stash. As I mentioned at the top of the show, January 1st, coming up in just a few days, we have the premiere of Ellen Noble's most recent episode on the Adventure Sash. She's a veteran of this podcast at this point. Thanks to her for always being so game for joining us. You can listen to that premiere as you ride with us, Ellen and myself, a Zwift group ride, like I said, January 1st, 10 a.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. As you listen to this episode, you'll be able to ask follow-up questions of Ellen real-time via the Zwift Companion app. We'd love to see you there. Uh, When you complete that group ride, you will unlock the official Adventure Stash kit. And if you like the looks of it, you can go to Valet.com and get yourself a real-life version. we got a baggy trail jersey version, uh, more of a race cut version, lots of sizes. I think extra smalls all the way up to triple XL. And 8% of proceeds from the sale of those kits goes to the Low Life's Trails organization, which is Zwift's backyard trail organization. Thanks also to Whoop. Whoop has been a longtime supporter of the Adventure Stash, and they have a special deal for you. Thanks to the use of code PAYSON, 15% off at checkout. I always rely on my Whoop a lot, obviously, each and every day, but uh, it's been funny 
to see what my recovery score is like during the holidays because uh, at surface level, you might think, oh, holidays, you know, more relaxed, a little bit more time on our hands, take a step back, enjoy some nice company. But in my experience, that also means less sleep because you're up late watching movies with the family, maybe enjoying an extra drink or two, maybe enjoying some extra Christmas cookies or chocolate that you might have gotten in your stocking. So it can be a little extra hard on my body. That's what I've found at least. So it's been interesting to track that and kind of try to roll with those challenges and continue making headway this early training season. If y'all would like to get started with Whoop today, you can go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com and use code PAYSON at checkout for 15% off. Thank you all so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please leave a rating. Please leave a review. Uh, Thanks to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing this show. And we will catch you next week or later this week on Friday if you'd like to join us on Zwift for that group ride with Ellen. See you then.